Hey, I tell you what I'm gonna give you, snakes. I'm gonna give you to the count of ten to get your ugly, yellow, no good keister off my property before I pump your guts full of the FOMO show. All right, Johnny, I'm sorry. I'm going. One, two, ten. Broadcasting from Brisbane, Australia, this is the FOMO show. Cryptocurrency for the rest of us. I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. And this is the podcast where you'll hear about cryptocurrency in plain English. We'll help you stay across the crypto world so you don't get the fear of missing out. Wherever you're tuning in from today, thanks for taking the time out to listen to the FOMO show. And thank you to the uh, the anonymous lawyer who was sitting in his car listening to the podcast on his way into work. And that really made my day. Um, <laughs> this, this dude, he comes up to me. He's like, dude, I was just sitting there. Th- I was listening to your thing about Ethereum and I was thinking, smart contracts, man. But Ethereum's great except this whole gas price thing. And I was just like, bro, it's so cool <laughs> when someone's actually listened to the podcast. Yeah. Like, wow, that's awesome. But yeah, look, if, if you do want to get involved, uh, we'd love to, for you to jump on our Slack. Yeah. Uh, the link actually does work now. Uh, so <laughs> if you've tried to join previously, you might have had a bit of issues. Uh, but the link does work now. So the link's in the show notes. And yeah, we've got some really good conversation going on there. It just gives you a place where you can come in, you can ask your questions, we can have a bit of a laugh and just have a good time. Yeah. So um, any questions, do get in touch. Yeah. We'd love to hear from you. And um, today we're going to be talking about Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. Uh, we're going to be talking about bubbles, so why everyone's talking about them and what they what do they mean for the crypto world. We'll be going through a few interesting pieces of news and some cool tools. We've got a voicemail from our roving South African reporter, Jordan Cronier, and we've also got a new guest who will be calling in from the United States, uh, where it's currently about four in the morning. And we'll be taking a deep dive into Aragon in our Decentralize Your Life section. If you've never bought crypto before, why not check out our guide at FOMO.show slash 101. It's got everything you need to know to get started, to get your first Bitcoins, how to buy them, how to store them, and how to send them. Cool, mate. But what's in the news this week? Well, there was um, some news coming out of um, Western Australia. Um, The Australian government has awarded a grant of eight million Australian dollars to to a project in the city of Fremantle using the Power Ledger platform. Um, For those of you who aren't from Australia and aren't familiar, Fremantle is in Perth, which is Western Australia. So if you're looking at the map of Australia, it's the bottom left part. And uh, the project is trialling the use of blockchain-powered distributed energy and water systems. So the funding for this actually comes as a part of the government's inaugural Smart Cities and Suburbs program. And what they say about it is that the trial will involve a highly resilient, low-carbon, low-cost system installed and connected using blockchain technology. So basically, Power Ledger will provide the transaction layer for renewable assets, as well as the ownership model for the community-owned battery when they set up these batteries in these future smart cities. So, mate, essentially, this is a new system where they're going to put power on a ledger. That's essentially what they're proposing to do, isn't it? Mm, mm, mm. So they're going to make it so that you can transact in power, you can pay for your power, you can send power to other people, and you can also own that power and you'll be able to track where that power originated and who it got sold to and when it was used, mm. all on a blockchain, essentially. 
So it should cut out a lot of paperwork and a lot of a lot of guesswork in in some of these situations. Um, and it's interesting that there's um, the uh, the government are getting involved in the uh, the analysis of the data on it. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting. Sort of moving towards the smart city, sort of tracking everything. It sounds like in the future, if you run like a solar farm in your backyard or something, and you've got a bunch of batteries there, and you wanted to send it back to the grid, mm. it seems like something like Power Ledger might actually really be able to make that more practical yeah because there's always this thing at the moment when you're giving power back to the grid as they say with your solar panels and everything else there's no real way for you to know where that actually goes how it gets used Mm. whether you're getting the amount you think you're getting yeah whereas if they put this on a ledger especially an open ledger and they let everyone log in and see exactly how much they're producing uh, and they let people set how much they want to sell that power for on the grid and give them owner- ownership over the power that they produce, I think it will really incentivize a lot more people to jump on this too. Because mm. if you've got a solar panel on the top of your roof, you can get involved quite easily and right. you know see exactly how much you're getting from it. Wow. So, yeah, you can check that out at powerledger.io. And it's really worth looking at. There's a huge amount of stuff that they're sort of... It's a massive, ambitious project. Mm. Um, but it really has a capability to do a lot for the, the energy sector. Um, and um, in the next piece of news... Um, Basically, we're all going to die because Boston Dynamics uh, Atlas robot um, can now do backflips. If you haven't seen the video on Facebook or Twitter yet, it's basically the um, the humanoid robot being made by Atlas, um, which uh, it used to be a Boston Dynamics used to be a Google owned company, um, and then they sort of spun it off after it started looking real evil. Mm. Um, the humanoid robot that they built um, it can now do a backflip. Which is wild. That's it, mate. You just need to see the video, and it's terrifying. So check out the link in the show notes. It is scary. I wasn't worried at all until I watched that video. <sighs> right, one day you're going to get pulled over by the police. It's Your police officer is going to be a robot, and if you resist arrest, nah, you're not going to win. Like There is no chance for you. <laughs> like I've seen the movies. There's so much room for it to go wrong. <laughs> I know, I know. And, and you never, you don't see much of that being considered around this stuff. It's like, look at this new thing that we got the robots to do. And I wonder what else we could do. It's like you've just got like a bear. You found it abandoned by its like mum in the woods. Mm. <laughs> and then like you raise it and you're like, oh, it's just. It's just real bad. That's right. Keep it near your dogs and all that. Yeah, and um, there's some news coming out of South Korea. Um, South Korea's Hyosung. I'm so sorry if you're from South Korea. Hyosung, one of the largest ATM manufacturers in Asia, has officially integrated Bitcoin into its international ATM models. Um, And once purchased, um, the machine basically prints a receipt with the public and private keys for a wallet with the crypto you've just bought. Um, you can then like scan those QR codes and then send that money to your wallet. Um, wow. Currently, it just supports Bitcoin, but they say it's going to be capable of supporting more coins in the future. Right. So what's the benefit of you know getting it from an ATM then as opposed to getting it from Coinbase or something like that? So I guess a lot of people want to get into cryptocurrency, but I mean, with smaller amounts of money, mm. it's... It's almost not worth the effort for some people. Yeah. I mean, some people just want to get Bitcoin, and sometimes their first view will just be they're at an ATM, and it goes, you can buy Bitcoin. And you're like, oh, I might buy $20 worth of Bitcoin because I've never owned a Bitcoin. Yeah. And you could just do that on an ATM and get a receipt and then be thoroughly confused. 
Yeah, Subscribe to the FOMO show at that point. <laughs> I wonder if the the price would be lower too then. Like the because you know Coinbase takes like yeah, a certain yeah, percentage. Yeah. Um, I wonder if it'd actually be cheaper to get it from the ATM. That's a very good question. So yeah, for the last three years, in South Korea at least, people have been able to buy and sell Bitcoin through tens of thousands of ATMs in South Korea, which is pretty wild. Three years they've been wow. you've been able to do this for. Do you not feel like we're just living in the past? I think so. We can't get regular but ATMs. Careers, <laughs> careers always, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but careers always been pretty forward thinking too, haven't yeah, they? Yeah, that's so, true. With that kind of internet speed as well. That's mm. right, mate. So the next bit of news, Coinbase has actually announced a new initiative called Coinbase Custody. And it's for institutional crypto investors. It's, it's this new push to try and get the institutional money in as much as they possibly mm. can. Now, it's designed for people with more than $10 million to invest. There's a $100,000 setup fee, Easy. Uh, which is um, which is quite significant. But there's estimated to be about $10 billion waiting on the sidelines from institutions ready to invest right now. Mm. Um, and they're just waiting for all the sort of the, the, the stuff to be in place, you know, multiple signatures for transactions and yeah. all kinds of um, audit trails and, li- and mm. limits. And that's what Coinbase Custody is going to do. It's going to essentially handle all that for them, to my mm. understanding, from this news anyway. They've got a concierge service, so it's a dedicated account representative and phone support. They've got they've got service-level agreements on fund transfers. And what's the consequence of that, Joe? That just means that there's guaranteed... Like, it's a guaranteed level of service to those investors who want, who want things to work exactly to a certain standard. So mm. that's really important for a lot of the big corporates out there. Um, mm. So this is really their push to get a regulated product mm. to the investment sector, which is quite heavily regulated, and that's what they're used to. And it seems like from a lot of news articles we've been reading that a lot of people, a lot of institutions just don't want to jump in yet because mm. that, that regulatory presence just isn't there. No one wants to be the test case. That's right. Mm. But it's, it's, it's a fascinating move because, I mean, you're looking at a lot of these big institutional investors. A lot of them are loaded up with bonds, which have, you know, if you're looking, I think it was Austria or I can't remember. I think it was Austria. Mm. They had their 100-year bond yield was 2.3%. Yeah, I saw that. And I can't remember which article it was. Maybe it was that Australia is a house of cards piece that we'll mention later. But 2.3% you're going to get in 100 years. Mm. Like, You're not going to be alive in 100 years. Year-over-year inflation has been set to 3%. You're losing money one way or another. That's right. But people are happy to just put money. It just doesn't make sense. Mm. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah, so it's essentially it's that institutions are really starting to take Bitcoin and other crypto seriously, and they want in, and Coinbase seems to be making the effort to facilitate that. So, mate, you found a really interesting article Last week, didn't you? Yeah. So I stumbled across it on my travels via Zero Hedge, and it was co-authored. It's an article called Australia's Economy is a House of Cards. Now, we can't do it justice on this episode Mm. because it's 15,000-odd words. We could do a whole episode on it. It was absolutely fantastic. And if you're interested in China, Asia, Japan, um, Australia... Take a look at this article. Well worth reading. It brings some like fascinating statistics all into one place. And it was written, co-authored by Matt Barry, the uh, CEO of Freelancer.com. And it's basically, it's just taking you through like a an introductory view to the Australian economy and how it's set up. Now, the thesis is, to quote the article, as a whole, the Australian economy has grown through a property bubble, inflating on top of a mining bubble, 
built on top of a commodities bubble driven by a China bubble. And unfortunately for Australia, that lucky free ride is just about to end. Yeah, so it, it goes on to talk about how Chinese banks are looking down the barrel of a staggering $1.7 trillion worth of losses and the effect that that may have on the Australian economy where we export a huge amount to China, a very large percentage, and a lot of our different economical sectors are built on this reliance towards China. I mean, as you probably know, interest rates have been super low. I mean, for economically, I'm not an expert, but interest rates seem to be the sort of the last tool in the arsenal of central bankers. And interest rates have been held at a very low, low or even negative numbers for years. Now, that's not a good sign. And as we mentioned with those, you know, those two, two odd percent over a hundred year bond yields like it's it's ridiculous it's it really does show that the economy is not in a good shape mm. at all and um money printing has just been happening just like crazy i mean the bank of japan now owns 75 percent of all japanese etfs like exchange traded funds mm. which is crazy it was like qe was only supposed to be a temporary emergency measure and when you say qe you mean quantitative easy yeah yeah just getting your printer printing some money out yeah and the central banks of the united states europe japan and china have now collectively purchased over 19 trillion us dollars worth of assets right so when everyone says that the share markets are doing really well and companies are doing really well What's actually been happening is the government's been purchasing a lot of this stuff mm. to try and put forward the impression that everything's okay. Yeah. It's business yeah, as usual. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just going to skip over some of the other points with it. Basically, it's not looking good for Australia at mm. all. And it got, brings some fantastic stats about how, how long this property bubble's been going on for. But if you're in Australia, worth checking this out really worth taking a look for a long time i've been looking for an article that sums up all these feelings i've had about the state of things in australia and i've always been saying to people i'll just be cautious like things won't always be this good but i've never really been able to put that into into words and Mm. back it up with Mm. data this guy has gone through it's probably more than a 60 minute read i think medium estimates it at over 60 minutes so it's, it's a huge read but there are so like every couple of paragraphs. There's a new graph. There's oh, a new yeah. infographic. There's something else. He, he's researched this so well, mm. and by the end, you're just like <sighs> you're looking at the scope of this, and you're, and you're saying, "Wow, like we've we've really been sold the dream, and everything might not be as good as mm. we actually thought it was." And it, that's important for us here in Australia, but it's also going to have a flow-on effect. For the rest of the world. Mm. And that's what they're saying. They're saying, look, it's it's the worst here in Australia. Australia's probably the most overextended, mm. especially looking at household debt and the lending against that household yeah. debt. One of the biggest things he looks at is the equity. The way that in Australia, people borrow money for new homes against the equity in their current homes. And that is totally wild because we've both come across some great examples of this. But you can basically, um, for those who don't live in such a crazy economy... If you buy a house for $200,000 and then suddenly the bank decides it's worth $400,000 a year later, they say, okay, we'll give you a loan for your next house based on the unrealized gains that you've made on your property, mm. which is all well and good. And It's all well and good while things are going up. Uh, <laughs> but if things come back down and you lose that equity, and we've, you see it here in Australia, there's a train driver that we looked at recently who earns a... 
$60,000 a year salary or something yeah. similar. And he's got $2 million worth of property and they're all just mortgaged against each other. Yeah. And apparently at the moment that gives a $2,000 a week a positive cash flow. But that's all well and good. But if anything changes with these variable interest rates, that everything can just disappear there. And it's just normal for most people. It's yeah. just normal. All we've ever known is growth in property prices. And so that's all that people think will ever happen. It's mm. a bit odd. But yeah, that, check out that article. It's called Australia is a House of Cards. Yeah, it, it, it's definitely worth looking at. I mean, we're obviously just two pessimistic blokes, but <laughs> um, it, he, he puts it really well and at least makes you question some of the things we've been told. So you came across a, a cool tool this week, BitInfo Charts? Yeah, mate. So it's called BitInfo Charts. I came across it when I was doing a bit of research for one of our other segments coming up in the show. It lets you take a look at a whole bunch of really interesting stats that I don't find on a lot of other sites. Like we've looked at on-chain FX before, we've looked at a few others. But a few of the unique ones that BitInfo Charts let you look at, for example, is what are the cryptos with no active addresses in the last 24 hours? Or it lets you look at the blockchain size and the block time of different cryptos. It also lets you even look at the last GitHub activity made. And now GitHub is where most of these projects host all their code. So it lets you see how well projects are being updated and how much activity there are and is there a lot of open source development on this stuff. Mm. The one I really found useful, though, was the average transaction cost. Okay, so BitInfo Charts lets you see, on average, how much does a transaction cost on any one of these blockchains. And it's not just the average transaction cost, but it lets you actually chart the costs over the last month. So you can see when the transaction cost went way up on average and then when it came back down. So it was really interesting looking at Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, and we'll go into that later. Uh, because it's actually tracked the cost of the transactions and it shows you around about where they're at now. Oh, no, do you know what? I found it was really useful just to be able to see all of the... It, it's 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 not all of the cryptocurrencies, but it's all of the top ones, and you can compare them head-to-head, which is really useful because ultimately when we're looking at what's going to be the future... Mm. You know, being able to compare, you know, the block time. So, how long is it going to be until your transaction is going to be confirmed? Mm. Things like that. You know, that is a real, real sort of key point mm. when it comes to looking at crypto. So, really interesting stats from from there. And yeah, block time and um, yeah, volume of transactions was kind of cool. Cool. So yeah, check it out. You can find it at bitinfocharts.com and we'll put the link in the show notes. Yeah, just as a side point there, we're going to start putting all of the tools that we've talked about in our past episodes onto our website. We're going to have a little section up there in the future where we'll have all the tools that we've come across, whether it's CoinGecko, OnChain Effects. I can see Matt's just trying to like struggle to fill out the show notes here with the links. But yeah, um, we're going to put all of those on our site with a little rating and what we found useful about it. So yeah, you can look forward to that. Cool. We haven't been able to get on to Jordan Cronier, uh, the roving FOMO show reporter this week, but he did leave us a voice message a few days ago. We're going to play it for you now. You have one new voice message. Message received yesterday, the 27th of November 2017. 
your answer to me. She said, no, rot, rot, rot. Well, I, I, just want, I, I just wanted to give you and your listeners uh, a quick, quick update. Uh, I know they've all probably been losing a sleep over my apparent demise, but I'm actually okay. I've almost made it to Saudi Arabia. I'm still on a ship, but uh, fortunately I escaped the pirates. Um, seems like they've got their own problems with Mugabe's retirement. Eh? And they, they let me off at the port of the, in, the, in the Horn of Africa. But um, after some quick talking and some promises I probably can't fulfill, I bought passage to Syria and then, uh, and then, and then Iraq through to Saudi. Uh, it looked like it was a shortcut, but I tell you, it definitely, it definitely wasn't, mate. Um, Southeastern Syria is not a place you want to be when you're asking for petrol. I mean, especially when you're running away from uh, some very angry freedom fighters, eh? But, uh, Anyway, I've been in touch with uh, His Majesty uh, Mohammed uh, bin, bin Salman, and uh, you'd probably be aware he's recently come into a, a bit of large, you know, donations from other members of the royal family. Well, I figured that I can do some reporting from from the hotel where his um, pres- um I mean, the guests are staying, and uh, also maybe propose he, he turn some of that money into crypto. I'm hearing very good things about Veritasium. Eh? I plan on telling him to invest it all. So it's it's definitely not a scam. I mean, that's been confirmed by now, right? Anyway, also, I, I read in the in the news that um, Saudi Aramco, the, um, the Saudi uh, national oil company, it's about to have an IPO at like 2 trillion US dollars. Now, I'm going to propose to the crown prince that they actually turn this IPO into an ICO. Anyways, I've got to go. I've got to barter for a new steering wheel with the locals there. Riding me very hard, mate. But when I show them what they could earn with Ethereum, I see, oh, I think they could probably give me a new car, eh? That's in. Yeah, so each episode, we're looking at a project that takes a centralized concept and makes it more decentralized. Now... When we say decentralized, we mean something that isn't just controlled by one company, uh, but it's a bit more open source and accessible for everyone. Now, what are these typically, Joe? You know, typically, uh, it's on a blockchain, it's free from censorship, gives governance to the users, isn't subject to any individual laws, and it's peer-to-peer. Yeah, so we're looking at Aragon, which is essentially a digital jurisdiction. Now, Aragon was an ICO that was run earlier this year, and their goal was essentially to be a token-governed digital jurisdiction. And they want to create an ecosystem where organizations, entrepreneurs, and investors can transact without bugs or malicious parties on the blockchain. So it's now in alpha, uh, and it's aimed at decentralized organizations. I think they wrote on the website, unstoppable organizations. You've got a, a claim to make. I reckon. So what is a decentralized organization? So a decentralized organization in this space is characterized by the initials DAO, which means decentralized autonomous organization. Now, what makes it different is that it's essentially a group of people coming together and wanting a more flexible arrangement. So a decentralized organization will normally tokenize employment and they'll normally say, we'll give you membership in the company uh, with a certain amount of tokens if you become Mm. an employee. So they incentivize everyone to participate. They normally spread the decision-making out over more of the organizational workforce as well because everyone's token has tokens. Those tokens normally entitle them to voting rights. And the idea is to essentially increase the buy-in that people feel. So you're not just an employee, but you feel like you're actually 
involved in this organization on a, on a bigger way. Wow. So that idea is still evolving. Um, but what Aragon does is it essentially proposes two principal services for a decentralized autonomous organization. And that is a decentralized court system mm-hmm. and a contract upgrade mechanism. So what are the, f- what are the features of Aragon Core? Yes, Aragon Core is essentially what they're calling uh, their main part in the network. And Aragon Core is a program that interfaces with the Aragon network. And it allows you to have customizable bylaws, for example, for organizations. So you can essentially set what an organization is going to be able to do, Mm. who can perform certain actions, what needs to be voted on and what's going to happen automatically. Uh, You can set the limits for people reaching consensus over something. And you can also then enforce all this stuff automatically with smart contracts. And that's where the big difference is. The idea of a decentralized organization is that you can automate a lot of this stuff that normally has to take a lot of double handling and people mm. you know, pushing paper around. They want to be able to automate as much of this as possible so people can actually get on with running the organization as wow. opposed to administering it. This is awesome because, I mean... From my perspective, it seems like if you wanted to like run a company in the future at some point, it seems like this would be the sort of thing you'd want. Because I mean, a lot of a lot of people, entrepreneurs out there who want to run companies, they want companies where their employees are rewarded according to the work that they're doing. So yeah. I mean, you get a profit share, you know, depending on you know how many ideas you contribute or this or that. And it seems like with something like like Aragon, you could actually program that set of rules in yeah. so that you know even your your cleaner could earn just as much as the CEO just by contributing, and it would all just work through a system like that. Yeah, so let's take a practical example. So let's say you wanted to let's and most companies now have what's called KPIs. So they've yeah. got certain targets that you need to meet with your budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you normally get some companies offer rewards over the top of that, but some companies it's very much you meet your KPIs and, or you exceed them and Employees don't really see much more for that. Mm. But with Aragon, you could program a smart contract that that rewards you further tokens and also monetary uh, remuneration Mm. based on the amount of money you're making for that organization. Mm. And you just build that into the smart contract as a percentage. And that's one of the really intriguing things about these uh, autonomous organizations. So... Aragon's recognized that and they've said, okay, well, that's great, but we need to expand this and we need to be able to you know, make this something that, that's really flexible and can work. What this tokenization does is it makes the ownership transparent and transferable. Uh, so the analogy is you know, for a public company, for example, if you own shares in a public company, mm-hmm. uh, you can transfer those shares on the stock market mm. uh, and someone else will be able to buy those shares off you and then mm. have a certain amount of shares in the company. And what they're proposing is to do similar. So they're proposing that you can you can have these tokenized percentages, but if you're an employee, you know you could potentially be getting rewarded these things for your hard work, and then you'd be able to sell these percentages mm, off. If you right. didn't want more of a control in the company, you yeah. could say, "Well, I'm just going to give my rewards off to someone else, and mm. they can, you know, buy in more to the company," which is really interesting. So, how do rewards work for these decentralized autonomous organizations we're talking about in in aragon yeah so in aragon what they're proposing to do is is say you put someone on a payroll uh you can issue tokens to them under specific parameters so like we're talking about before you could go kpis or you could do like a time-based or a task-based performance Mm. parameter and you can have the smart contract automatically pay 
the the tokens out to that employee. And that means with these smart contracts, you can choose the amount to pay, mm-hmm. you can choose the frequency, you can use the, choose the amount to reward, and you can even choose the parameters by which these things are paid out. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is they're proposing to be able to pay in any Ethereum token. So it may not necessarily be in the Aragon token or the company's mm-hmm. token. It may be in something else and they're saying, well, we're going to try and build in Shapeshift or something similar. Mm. So, if someone wants to just be paid out in Bitcoin, they can be paid out in Bitcoin. This is exciting. Like, just the way that you can build how this is all sort of slotted together with smart contracts and smart tech. Man, that's wild. Yeah. So, it's, it's really intriguing because they're essentially trying to build a decentralized, I guess you'd say, corporations act mm. or whatever the equivalent is in your country where companies can choose to found their company on the Aragon network and be bound by the Aragon rules or set their own mm. rules and not really be tied to any one country. You know, I mean, if, mm. if you're a completely blockchain company and you're paying out in blockchain, everyone is working remotely, why sh- should you feel like you need to be tied to the company of your choice? That's what they're mm. saying. Now, there are some issues with that. And I think one of the big challenges they've got is that even though this idea of a decentralized organization is really good, the question is, how is a country going to react to that? You know, if all, fa- all the founders are in America, how is the US government going to react to having all the founders in America but having an organization on the blockchain not paying any taxes, mm. you know? So that's going to be a big issue. That's something that's I see question, in the future yeah. that's going to be quite difficult. Uh, and that does lead into their their proposal for this court system. So how does that court system you mentioned earlier sort of slot into this? Yeah, Aragon's proposal is that, you know, if there's a dispute, which there inevitably will be with most of these things, you can create, you can actually request that your case be arbitrated by the Aragon network. And this is an opt-in system, so they're not saying that you technically have to be a part of it. But it will mean that there's a few remedies that are available. So, for example, in an allegation of theft, you may be able to apply to have the the person who's allegedly stolen the funds freeze their account. Mm. Now, the way they propose to do this is by these judges. Now, a judge, by their explanation, is someone that can post a bond to be a judge. So, a certain amount of money to say, I want to put my hat in the ring to be a judge. When the arbitration begins, so when both parties come together and they try and reach an outcome on this thing, Mm -hmm. there'll be five judges chosen randomly by the network. Now, these judges are going to look at the Aragon network rules and any other encrypted material that's been sent in by the parties, and they're going to post what's called a secret. Now, a secret is just essentially their decision, but that decision is hashed and sent to the court, so it's not readable by anything but the algorithm. Mm. At the finish, after all those five judges have put in their decisions, they'll be revealed and the right answer, which where it's at right now, I think means the majority, mm-hmm. they're going to be rewarded reputation and the other judges who didn't get the right answer are going to be penalized quite heavily. Mm. Now, if you don't like their decision, you can appeal to what's called the prediction marketplace, which is like a deep thinking AI that's going to grow over time and be able to analyze these these cases. What? And if you don't like their decision, then you can appeal to the Supreme Court, which is essentially going to be the top nine judges. So, it's sort of all five judges... So they make their decision, and is that is that in some kind of a? Co- I'm guessing that's in some kind of a code or some kind of language that's understandable by the network and works with the rules that this decentralized autonomous organization itself has custom created. 
That's a really big task that they've got mm. on their hands there. Blimey. It's a, it's a really interesting concept. I mean, just looking at it as I'm a lawyer in another life, I saw a few uh, problems that are going to need to be fixed. The first one is that they've proposed this concept of a right answer. Mm. And as anyone who's even watched legal TV oh, shows. Judge knows. Judy, big fan, <laughs> big fan. <laughs> the truth is very fluid. And what's right for one person isn't necessarily right for another person. Mm. Now, the issue I see with this majority decision thing is you could have a bunch of bad judges that get elected because they're elected randomly and they could make the wrong decision and only one person might make the right decision. So, you're going to get this majority decision, but let's say, you know, a bunch of 12-year-old kids and no offence to any of our 12-year-old listeners out there, but... You're great people. Good on you. And we're not educated in this kind of stuff. They could get these things and make decisions and they could all come to the same decision, but it could be the completely wrong yeah. decision, you know. I've and seen 12 Angry Men. That could happen. Yeah, and look, if if they then keep doing this and keep getting validated by each other mm. or the other people out there that are posting these bonds making these decisions, they could feasibly become the top nine judges of the Supreme Court. <laughs> it's like kangaroo uh, court, basically. You know, yeah, point, so yeah. I've just got some real concerns about the yeah. decision-making process and I'd like to see how they're going to vet these yeah. judges and whether there's any kind of requirements for these people to judge things. Um, so so how does this sort of work with traditional laws in, you know, in uh, in countries where an, a DAO is operating? I'm not real sure because the issue is with a decentralised organisation, essentially it's everywhere. It's on the internet, okay? Mm. So someone could feasibly sue your company in a, a, a national jurisdiction. So mm. I could walk into the court tomorrow and say I've got a claim and statement of claim to file against this organization and this is the person you need to you need to talk to because they're the director they're the controlling interest yeah. okay so let's say i'm doing that and joe you're in charge of a decentralized autonomous yes. organization so you've got a 60 percent share at the moment in it nice. okay you could say oh but it's it's decentralized it's on the blockchain yeah. like <laughs> it's on this new thing it's, it's, and the court's going to look at you and go where do you live and you'll say in australia and i'll say okay and you're the controlling mind of this company, well, yeah, I guess I hold a 60% share. <laughs> All right. Well, you can answer this court claim, you know, and Ooh. and they could assert that the correct jurisdiction is that jurisdiction in mm. which you live because mm. that's where the controlling mind of the company is. And so, I don't know how that'll hold up and I don't know how you would actually assert that if it's a really broad decentralized autonomous organization mm-hmm. the most that someone holds is five percent and they're all in different countries i'm not sure how that's all actually going to play itself out mm. i think there'll be some test cases and <laughs> in my experience what centrally controlled state entities like the least is when someone comes along and says you're irrelevant <laughs> and i'm not going to do what you tell me i'm going to create my own country i won't play by your rules that's right uh, and you know we've there, there's there's places where people have tried to set up their own little kingdom or country and <laughs> yeah. things have not really gone well for them, you know. So. Well, we've got Lieberlander making, a, making an attempt. But yeah, right. no, you're yeah. right. You're definitely right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I'm just quite sceptical about how this mm. is all going to turn out. I mean, look, it's a great concept. And I think the moment this is out of alpha, I'd love to test it out. I'd love sure. to make a... You know, a FOMO decentralized organization mm. and we can, you know, we can muck around in it all and we can have fun. But like... A lot of this crypto stuff, the real kick is going to come when we start seeing how governments react to this stuff. Mm. Because 
what governments don't like is when you don't pay their taxes. And mm. decentralized organizations, the way that they're proposing to be set up, they're not going to be paying taxes. The taxes will actually be taxes to the network, which they're established on. So Aragon has a fee. You know, they've got a, yeah. a two two percent fee or something. Some of it's used to mint new tokens. Right. Some of it's used to go to development, and that's essentially a tax. And you can also see sort of a bit of you know public opinion could really be swayed against one of these DAOs mm. because you know they oh they think they're above our law. You know, it's you could definitely see sort of parallels with you know for for example when you've had you know Shari- Sharia courts. Mm. Um, there's, you know, often people are like, "Oh, are our laws not good enough?" Yeah, there are definitely like people can be really skeptical of yeah. outside sort of laws coming in. Yeah, um, and until you can upload yourself to the internet and exist entirely in the internet, at the end of the day, you still reside in a country. There'd be a and lot of cats on that. You are still likely or not subject to their laws. Mm. So it, the test case for this is going to be really interesting. So. Matt sent me a link this week to um, Latium. He posted that in the FOMO Show Slack, which you can check out. That's our little messaging system. Um, and what it looks like is it's a, it's a it's an app where you can crowdsource tasks to one or multiple people. Now, Latium... Essentially, what they're proposing is they want to be the Airtasker of the blockchain world. So, Airtasker, that's the thing where I put my credit card info in and I can pay people to nearby, in the nearby area to, or across the world to do things for me? That's right. Yeah. Cool. So, you can essentially post up a job and say, I want you to come move my couch and I'll pay you 50 bucks. Nice. And people can jump online and, and see that. And if, if someone's got a ute or a truck for you guys in the rest of the world or a utility, they can say, oh, yeah, I, I can put that on the back of my truck. I'll drop around and do it for 50 bucks. And so they, they hit accept and then you drop around, do the job. Once the job's done, you say job's done. The other person says job's done. You get paid and you can review each other. Hmm. That's essentially a tasker. Now, Latium is proposing to do the same thing, but on the blockchain. So they're essentially saying, we're going to do this. It's going to be a trustless system. It's all going to be reported on an open ledger. And you're going to be able to rate each other. You're going to be able to put these jobs up. And it's all going to work automatically. So there'll be no central system. So, for example, if someone gets a really bad rating and they email Airtasker and say, oh, look, I'm willing to pay you $50,000 to get my rating better, there's a good chance they might say, yeah, you know what, $50,000, we need the money, we'll do it. What these guys are proposing to do is that it's all on the blockchain, it's all immutable, there's no way you can change it, your rating's your rating. Now... We were originally going to uh, say, look, this is something you might want to check out. But, mate, one of my biggest problems with all of these platforms is it's like, use our platform, you can pay with our token, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. We're talking about adoption. Yeah. We're, ta- we're saying that, you know, all these things we want it's to be adopted Everyone's going right? to be on it. Why then do I have to change into your token... Yeah. Like, go to all the effort of changing my Ethereum into your token yeah. and to then interact with your app. Like, that's mm. a hot... Because we talk about, like, where does the blockchain improve things? So, for example, with this one, you've got Airtasker, right? Which yeah. you can just log in and you can log in, you just put your credit card details in, you can instantly start getting people to do tasks for you. It just pulls your credit card like that. Nice. Everyone's got a credit card. Yeah. But if I want to use Latium, for example, I have to first go into my Ethereum account and first have, buy some Ethereum. I have to first buy some Ethereum, right? And then I have to send my Ethereum to the Latium, like exchange it into Latium. So I go on to exchange, exchange it, or use Shapeshift, exchange it into their token. Mm-hmm. Then I have to 
either hook that address in, so hook that wallet address in, or send it to the Latium wallet, and then finally I'll be able to start paying for things in Latium. Now that's taken me like twenty minutes. I'm definitely seeing it. it's not. It's not. It's not making it easier, faster, or better. That's taken me twenty minutes, but and it, I could achieve it, but, the same thing but without. It's on, this. it's on the blockchain. <laughs> It is on the blockchain. <laughs> well, it will be on the blockchain, apparently. I think what these tokenized platforms need to be saying is the first thing we are going to do is integrate Shapeshift or mm. integrate Flip.me or something else. Make- and all you mm. need to do is give us your Ethereum account and there needs to be some way for that Ethereum account to be automatically debited. That is Now, if that hasn't been created yet, someone needs to create it because Mm. until we've got something like that, that level of integration, Mm. the barrier to get into these platforms is going to be so high that people are going to go, you what, mate? Like, I need to go through these 20 steps before I can go on your platform where... On, in the alternative, I can just go to something that isn't on the blockchain, but is way easier and achieve pretty much the same that thing. That is a very good point, man. Like, what you're saying there is that if you're going to run some kind of blockchain-based platform, you don't necessarily need a token. Set it up. So, what you're saying is basically set it up so it can work with any token. Yeah. And, you know, you could get paid in pretty much any token. Yeah. And, you know, it might your app might work on the blockchain, but it doesn't need its own token slash thing to do with. Yeah, I, I just get the feeling with so many of these ICOs, they're trying to avoid the Howie test, which for you, those of you guys that don't know, the I'm Howie test is essentially, is something a security or not? And if something's a security, most nations have very strict regulations around what you're able to do with securities. Right. So to get around yeah. it, they're saying, well, this token isn't just a promise of you know, a, a percentage later on or a promise of profit. Mm-hmm. It's something that we're going to be able to use on the network. But what that's meaning is that all these platforms are creating these systems which have this extra layer on top of them that just make them unwieldy. It makes it really dif- difficult to use them. I think we need to call these junk tokens, man. Like, just, <laughs> I mean, you've got junk bonds. I, I, what are junk bonds? I've heard of junk bonds. I don't actually know if they're junk or not. So they're bonds that are rated really badly. High yield, rated real bad. Yeah. That does sound like I don't know. I just I just feel like with a lot of this stuff, we're trying to fit a circle block into a square hole. Like Mm. I look at this and I go, and this is look. This is probably for most ICOs. I think it's just that the veneer is starting to come off a lot of these ICOs now. Mm. And I look at a lot of these ICOs and I go, okay, so you've got this token, but all it's really doing for me is making it more difficult for me to use your platform. But it says crowdsource the future on the homepage. Sorry, no, 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 I'm kidding. You were saying, like, it's making it much harder for people to use and get into? Yeah, like, I, I kind of, I look at this and I'm like, this could have just been made on Kickstarter. This company could have gone to Kickstarter and said, look, we want to make this platform. It's going to be a blockchain platform. No, but that's a, that's a very good point because you, you're just looking at it and it's it's something that already exists in the regular world. It already has 1.7, like Airtasker, for example, has 1.7 million users. Amazon have their system, Mechanical Turk, which um, where you can pay people to transcribe video or this, that, and the other for pennies. And they say that they're actually going to build an Android app for this, you know, that will come at some point. But then it doesn't make it any easier. And they're not proposing anything that isn't being done already except the fact that it's on a blockchain. But it's just kind of like, why? Because Airtasker could just put it on a blockchain. Like, the thing is, the blockchain 
on this doesn't add any extra functionality mm. that isn't already being performed somewhere else or could be performed somewhere else. When you're researching these ICOs, you've got to start asking yourself, what are they going to do different? And is it really a point of difference or are they just chucking blockchain in and saying it's on the blockchain? Because it's that's what they did in the dot-com com bubble. Dot-com, yeah. You know, they, they just put dot-com at the end of something and it was Joe's the same fish thing. and chip chop. Really good fish and chips. But Best. at the end of the day, it's still a fish and chip Did shop. I need a website for it? Do wow. you need $10 million to keep doing your fish shop, fish and chip shop? No, you don't. <laughs> we'll spend it on marketing. <laughs> so we were going to say go check out Latium, but... Check out Latium at latium.org. So it seems that after several calls to Dan Dan the ICO man, the figurative floodgates have literally opened. Our FOMO show inbox has been inundated with offers of interviews for Bitcoin giveaways, multi-level crypto marketing schemes, blatant scam ICOs, and even one guy wanting to start a crypto hedge fund with a quote-unquote one-year studying business at uni under his belt. Now, after we deleted most of these, we were left with one email from a day trader named Tim, who's apparently seen it all when it comes to crypto trading. We're going in blind with this one, so let's give him a ring. Hello? Hi, Tim. Wow, hot damn, is that those FOMO guys? Yeah, that's right, Tim. Uh, It's Joe from the FOMO show. Thanks, Tim. It's great to have you on the show. So, um, you're going to share some trading tips with us? That's right, Joe. I reckon I got a thing or two to tell your listeners. All right. Well, uh, let's let's just start out small, Tim. What's the number one thing everyone should do if they're considering day trading? Well, hang on a sec, Joe. Marjorie, can you put old Bessie out in the other paddock? She ain't got no more fresh grass where she is now. Well, dang it, lady, I got 264 buy orders and damn near as many sell orders. I'm running on the ragged edge here. This whole crypto tower's gonna come tumbling down if I step away. Now, he's real currency. It's the currency of the future. Sorry, Joe, you were saying... Uh, what are your beginner trading tips, Tim? Well, you got to do your due diligence first, Joe. Just don't go throwing all your money at the first RCO that you find. Do your research. Y'all would have heard of Google. Use it. See what the other folks are saying about it. If it looks good, buy a little. Don't spend your mom's inheritance, man. Just spend a little. That's uh, that's actually very good advice, Tim. Um, do your research, start small. Any other tips for our, for our listeners today? Well, best way I started was by dollar cost averaging. And uh, and what's dollar cost averaging for uh, for our listeners? Joe, it's where you take a certain amount per week and you invest it. Don't spend any more or less than that. Just say. I'm going to put four nickels in the bit tracks every week and do it. Once you start doing that and get used to working with small amounts, then you can think of being a big old daytime trader like Trader Tim. Well, Tim, this has been surprisingly informative. Uh, Thanks for your advice. 
No problems, Joe. I got to get back to my buy orders anyway. This crypto ain't gonna trade itself. No, it ain't, Tim. No, it ain't. Uh, happy trading. Thanks, Joe. Okay, so this week we wanted to take a little bit of time out, and this is really, not really, we don't really have a name for this segment, but we just wanted to touch on it, because I think it's important right now is Bitcoin's going to the moon, and a whole bunch of ICOs are raising a lot of money, and I think there was like $40 billion added to the crypto market cap in like one week. But the last week, wow. there's about $40 billion, I think $10 billion in one day. Mm. That might have been all that investor money coming in, but... There's been a lot of talk about bubbles, and if you go on, you know, Zero Hedge, Medium, whatever, uh, whatever you, you get your news from for crypto, you'll normally see like two articles every day. One will be saying it's all a bubble, and this is why. The other one will say this it's not a bubble, and this is why. So everyone's talking about bubbles. Mm. So we thought it'd be worth just touching on it and having a bit of a discussion about it. So what is a bubble, Joe? In essence, um, bubbles usually form because people buy something as it's going up. And then it goes up because people buy it. Now, it's usually driven by speculation and it usually results in overvaluing. And eventually, something happens to create a domino effect. Yeah, so we saw this with the global financial crisis in 2008. Uh, If you've watched the movie The Big Short, it shows you the way this domino effect worked. Yeah, 100%, because you just had, like, the whole market was just looking, saying, this is what, this is great, this is great, this is great, great times, great times, and there's just one bloke in the whole planet who was like, hold on. So, with all of these, like, um, it was the the more, the more junk mortgages that were being sold and sort of all lumped together with people with, like, low credit ratings who'd just been given loans, and then there's just one investor out of all of the investors who are buying these billions and billions of dollars worth of these, like, nonsense mortgages... Uh, mortgage-backed securities, sorry. And there's this one bloke who's just like, hold on, let's have a look at who is buying these and who are these? Who actually owns these things? What are we buying? Mm. But yeah, there's this whole talk about, you know, Bitcoin being in a bubble because, you know, there's a there, there's so much volatility. There's a lot of people who are saying, it's going to crash, it's going to crash. A lot of people are going, it's going up, it's going up. Why could it crash? There's such a limited supply and so much demand. Mm. Mm. And you've got all of these sides who are, who are talking. However, the price is just rocketing up. Now, that's where we want to talk about bubbles because... Eventually, there must there's going to be a point where there may be a downwards correction, or there may be some bad news in one country, like you know America, for example. They say, "Oh, we're outlawing Bitcoin," or if they do something like that, yep. that can create some real panic, and people are going to run for the doors. Mm. This this was touched on in an article that we read recently, which we'll put the link in the show notes, and it was called "How and Why the Crypto Bubble Will Burst," and it was by a bloke named Denny K on Medium. And it said, for someone who has lived through the dot-com bubble, the madness currently unfolding in the crypto space is just plain breathtaking. It is quite awe-inspiring to see people make the exact same mistakes they made 17 years ago. Of course, today's investors are likely different people who, for the most part, have not lived through the dot-com bubble. So he draws some parallels to the the IPOs from the dot com boom, uh, the ICOs of today, and you know you're saying everyone was taking part, institutions, high net worth investors, and your local retail guy who worked at Walmart or drove a cab. As a matter of fact, cab drivers handed out tips of the next hot IPO to their riders. Most IPOs only needed a business idea that was vaguely related to the internet to achieve success. 
And so then he talks about the similarities in the ICO world. So he says, it appears everyone has taken part in an ICO or a pre-sale of some random token that promises to use the blockchain to deliver your local groceries or some other ridiculous <laughs> idea that could potentially benefit for a decentralized application, but certainly doesn't need a token to work. Mm. Some of these ICOs, especially in early 2017, have indeed 10 times the money of the people who invested, which fueled the boom. And he, he basically says, look, at the moment, anything that has blockchain in it soars. Mm. And and it's true. The, the new valuation paradigms that are being thought up. And yeah, that's what they're saying. Oh, you can't measure it like you can measure anything else. You have to look at this differently to anything else. Yep. That's exactly what they said in the, in the dot-com bubble. So, he's saying at least in the dot-com bubble, at least people were receiving actual equity for their hard-earned cash. But the people who are investing in ICOs aren't receiving any rights in return. And then he says, if you look at coinmarketcap.com, uh, the go-to site for market caps, you'll notice that the only ca- they'll only count the circulating supply, which is generally the amount of coins not held by team members of the firms that are selling them. Yeah, so essentially the, what he's talking about there is when you buy into an ICO, you'll normally see this graph. It'll be this nice graph and it'll be like, you know, the ICO buyers get 60% and then you, there's 20% set aside for the... Uh, for the team, you know, yeah. and, it's, and that has a cliff, you know, it, it matures after six months or a year or something, mm. which is apparently meant to incentivize them to build Work the actual hard. product yeah. um, because that's something that you must have to doubt. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and that kind of shows you where we're at, doesn't it? And then, you know, there's like 10% set aside for a foundation and 10% set aside for something else. So for most of these ICOs, there's only really about 50%, 60% of the overall tokens out in the wild at the moment. Mm. And that's what, Coin market cap currently values them on, but the truth is, once these other tokens mature, then you've got almost double again, uh, and so your current valuation really in your head you should probably be halving it because there's going to be twice as much supply soon. Mm. Obviously, that's assuming that these tokens are going to be traded on the open market by the team, but it's it's worth thinking about that mm. there's a lot more supply there locked up and locked mm. away at the moment that will be hitting the market soon. Mm. And Danny K actually draws attention to a tool that we mentioned back in episode four and six. It's called OnChain FX. And by default, it shows you what the total market cap is, assuming all of the coins are in existence. And I think it's like a 2050 implied market cap. So yeah, Matty, he talked about uh, the government's coming into this. And we've touched on this at certain points before. But essentially, the thrust of this bubble article was that once regulation comes into the space, it's really going to have a big effect. Mm. And one of the the big reasons he said this was because, for example, if someone attaches a prison sentence to trading Mm. securities, which a lot of these ICOs are, whether they like it or not, no one's going to want to be involved. Mm. And there's knock-on effects for that. you know. So it's not just these ICOs, although this is the focus of this this article is this ICO bubble. Mm-hmm. The crypto space isn't immune from you know that it's not segregated into ICO, blockchain project and and uh, utility tokens. Everything's kind of intermingled. Mm-hmm. And I was reading somewhere else. I was talking about like the fact that because it's such a new market and because it's so much that's built on speculation, when there's fear and when there's uncertainty and there's doubt, that's amplified mm-hmm. so much more in this market. Mm. as opposed to a lot of other markets. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, uh, when you've got people like Max Kaiser who's saying, oh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hit 25,000 before there's a crash, 
But even then, you're looking at doubling the price of where it is at the moment. So people are going to buy in now and be like, this thing is going to be huge. Watch it double their money. And then they're going to see, you know, they could see it sink down to like eight grand, you know, after a big crash, like after a crash, you know, a year from now. Mm. But, you know, everybody's going to leave for the doors at the same time. And, you know, whatever the site you're using to cash out, these people who are cash going to help you cash out, they can only afford to pay you so much. Yeah. I yeah. mean, there's only so much liquidity until the point where, you know, if everyone's panicking, that could go really bad really fast. Yeah, and look, like the parabolic, this parabolic rise we're seeing at the moment, you know, the, all, all the money coming in, there, there's some really good underlying tech, just like there was with the dot-com bubble. But mm. things that go parabolic up can also go parabolic down, you know, <laughs> and, and normally it's the same kind of emotion, you know, mm. like at the moment, I mean, mate, I'm feeling it, you know, I mean, we talk about getting no FOMO, mm. but like the more you see Bitcoin go up, the more you're like, oh, geez, should I just put more in? Yeah. Like it's going up. Mm. Should I just put more in? Because I'm going to make money on it. You know, it, it seems like every week it's it's now going up by a thousand dollars, you know, yeah. it seems to be going up faster and faster. And that seems to be what's driving a lot of this. You know, a lot of it just seems to be speculation. It's like, you know, you'll have people ask, oh, how can I get into Bitcoin? And if you ask them why, they won't say, oh, it's a really good technology and I believe in it. Most of them. Most of them will say, oh, look, I just, I saw how much it's making and my my managed share funds, you know, that my financial advisors put me in, (laughs) they're not making anywhere near that much, you know? And that's, that's speculation. That's gambling. Uh, I, I was at a meetup on Friday night and we were chatting about this and we were talking about the fact that, you know, you can get the same outcome if you go to the casino. Hmm. If you go to the casino and you put it all in black, you're saying, I'm speculating that this is going to hit black and there's a 50% mm. chance that it is. At the moment, a lot of people are seeing Bitcoin going up and they're saying, well, I'm just going to speculate that it's going to keep going up and that's dangerous. And that, it's a similar thing with these ICOs. And look, we're not, we're not saying that the bubble's going to burst tomorrow. And we're not saying that necessarily we are in that stage of a bubble. I, was, I saw a tweet by Max Kaiser today where he said, to him, it feels more like this is a Netscape moment, which Netscape was the first real browser on the internet that made the, browsing the internet actually accessible for mm-hmm. most people. And it wasn't until three years later that the so-called bubble burst. Uh, it was I a significant amount right, of time. Yeah. And it was actually that Netscape moment that made so many people realize the potential of the technology. Right, yeah. Um, so, Danny Kay sums up his article in saying that. He goes, look, all these ICOs could lose 90, 90 plus percent of their value, just like during the dot-com bubble. But he goes, like, he keeps bringing it up, but Amazon fell to 5.5 US dollars a share in 2001, and now it trades at 1,000 plus US dollars. So, you know, some of these good projects, Bitcoin included, could lose a huge amount of their value, but, you know, they're, they're still good. Like, still, even the good projects could fall. Mm. So, when fear kicks in, I'm just going to keep hold of mine, that's for sure. What, what would your solution to be to a, to being in a crypto? So, let's say you, you've you've bought into into cryptocurrency, and obviously you've you've balanced that out with other investments elsewhere outside of cryptocurrency. Mm. But you've made a bunch of money in this, and then you know it looks like all your returns are huge, and then it just crashes. What what are you going through? What are you doing at that point? Yeah, look, I think it comes down to how you've invested. My personal investment strategy, and this is not financial advice, is to dollar cost average, as we've talked about before, you know, so put a bit in um, every week Mm -hmm. and just invest slowly. And I try to make it a habit now to take profits when I get them. So normally that's just pulling it back over into Bitcoin 
which is what I've been doing. Uh, but I, I'm actually going to try and start making a habit to pull some of that out back into Fiat as well, just to mm. diversify mm, mm. Uh, and make sure I'm not putting all my eggs in one basket. Mm. And what I mean by taking profits is that if you invest in something and it's a, you know, it's a good project, you've done your research, you think it's, it, it, it's something that more people over time will want to put their money into and you're right and it does go up, mm-hmm. you need to set yourself a point where you say, okay, at this point, I'm going to at least cash out my investment. So, mm. it's crazy to even think it in the crypto world, but normally, you know, you want to do that around about when you've doubled. That's what I normally set my target at. Now, if it's a really low market cap coin, sometimes I set my target a lot higher mm-hmm. because I th- it, there's a lot more potential mm-hmm. there if people mm-hmm. find out about it for it to grow very quickly. Mm. But if it's something that's got a quite a, a bigger market cap, you know, like say IOTA, you know, IOTA when I invested in it was 30 Aussie cents and now it's well over a dollar, you know. And Dang, son. I t- you know, I took my initial investment back out. So my amount of IOTA I've got left now is just essentially the profit amount. So whatever happens to it, I'm not that worried about it because mm. I've already taken the profit out of that. Yeah. So, so already taken the initial investment back out. Yeah. So I saw an, uh, another interesting sort of strategy along those lines. It was just sort of portfolio balancing, where mm. let's say you've let's say you've just got a thousand dollars and you split that five ways into five different coins. So each is twenty percent of your total portfolio. Check back in every couple months or every month or two, and then if one of those things is suddenly become thirty percent. You know, that's when you cash out that little bit, bring it back to 20. Mm. That's an interesting idea that I saw. I haven't yeah. tried that myself. I yeah. just like throw stuff in, throw money into stuff and just, just watch it, really. But it's, <laughs> I, I don't I've know how I'm going to respond. I've had good success with that. Mm. Yeah. I have yeah, heard that they've yeah, had good right. success with that. Look, I mean, obviously, we're not saying that there's going to be a bubble. I, I think the reason we bring this up is just because every, there's so much excitement around. It's just worth thinking about this stuff. Mm. And it's worth going, how much of this is just built on speculation? And that should affect your investment strategy. I think that's just, it's keeping it in mind because the people that are really up, going to be really upset, if it is a bubble and the bubble does burst, are going to be the people that have invested everything into this mm. and have just thought that it's going to keep going up and up and up and up and up. But if, you've, if you're investing with the view that things might turn south tomorrow, that changes the way you behave, but it mm. also changes that emotional attachment mm. as well. You find you're not as emotionally attached to this stuff and you're more involved with the tech. I mean, that's why we talk about the tech so much on this show because we try and keep the money out of it as much as we can because normally we're investing in projects we think are actually quite good. Mm. And if you're doing that, if you're looking at doing your research and looking at projects that are really good fundamentally, have a good team around them, have a real point of difference, have a reason to be on the blockchain, then if what this guy talks about happens and crypto loses 90% of its value in a matter of weeks, then the ones that rise from the ashes, like what happened with the dot-com bubble, mm-hmm. are going to be the ones that still have a real use case. You know, that's And, and I think that is where you should be putting uh, your money. The other thing to do is just start putting some money away. You know, start putting some money away into a separate bank account. Mm-hmm. You know, as much as we rag on fiat, it's a stable currency at the moment. Mm-hmm. Start putting that money away and if there is a crash, then you've got a fund 
there waiting mm, mm. To, to capitalize on the crash. And you know? Yeah. Because he talks How long about, will you be waiting for? Who knows? Who but knows? it's, you know, you're raining. It's about a hedge. Fund. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you, yeah. You, you never want to have all your eggs in one basket. Mm. And what is it that they say? You know, be fearful when other people are greedy mm. and be greedy when other people mm. are fearful. Mm, mm. And I don't see many people fearful right now, mate. <laughs> you know, and that's true. Um, yeah. And that's, that's just something to, to keep in the back of your mind. Yeah. So, yeah, when you're buying, uh, what Matt was saying about distancing yourself from your investment, just be like, just put it out there as if I'm never going to get that back. And if you felt any kind of like question mark when you put that money out that you shouldn't maybe spend it, don't spend it. Because mm. if you've got that gut feeling where you're like, oh, I don't really, if your gut's in it and you're like, I'm happy to, you know, and you've said, I've made my piece, I'm happy to lose this money, do it. Yeah. That's, and then, you know, when things get cheaper, slash when there's a crash, if things, when there's a crash, things get cheaper. That's how Warren Buffett looks in. It's really interesting seeing his approach where he's just like, if the price is coming down on something you bought yesterday, you can buy it cheaper today mm. than you could buy it yesterday. That's right. That's great. Yeah. You shouldn't be thinking, oh, oh, this Coca-Cola that I'm going to buy is, is, is suddenly, oh, it's cheaper than it was yesterday. That's terrible. I've lost my money on the value of the Coca-Cola I bought yesterday. Yeah. Admittedly, it's a drink, but still, the point is you're getting something cheaper. So if there's a crash... Start getting in. Now, obviously, no one can time the bottom. Yeah. Yeah, there are very few lucky people would time the bottom, mm. but you'll be able to get it cheap, far cheaper than you have now if there is a crash. Yeah, it's likely if there is a bur- bubble burst or a correction or something like that, the good projects are going to go down with everything else, mm-hmm. but then they're probably going to go back up pretty quick as well because mm. enough people understand this stuff. They know what's good and they know what's speculative, you know, and that's, you really need to be asking yourself, okay, what are the best ones? And if things go south, just have a plan, you know, just just write it down somewhere or just think about it for 10 minutes, jot a couple of lines down, then move on with your life, you know. And if things do go south, then you can go, oh, I've already planned for this and I've got some money set away. Fantastic. Yeah. So if you think there's any possibility that there is going to be a crash, save up some money and this is going to be the best investment opportunity you've had in years because opp- crashes don't come around every other day. Except in the crypto world. It's such. <laughs> yeah, and look, don't be fearful. Like, just make a plan. That's all you got to do. Mm. We, we tell you this stuff just so you're aware that there are these views out there. Mm. Uh, we're still really excited about blockchain, and mm. we still think it's the future. Just uh, don't it's need, just, you don't need to run for the doors. That's right. But at the end of the day, there is a lot of other factors at play, and some stuff may happen between now and then, like it did as the like it did in the dot com bubble. Hundred percent. We've got a new section this week called Listener Questions. So there are several ways you can get your questions through to us. You can jump on our Slack at FOMO.show forward slash Slack. Yeah, if you've had difficulty getting on our Slack, like we said earlier, uh, it should be fixed now. So just go to FOMO.show slash Slack. Uh, tweet us at the underscore FOMO underscore show. And uh, yeah, send us a message on our Facebook page. Uh, some of these questions actually came from our Facebook page. So people have been messaging us on that. We do prefer Slack but we will respond to your Facebook messages. And uh, yeah, shout out to Luke particularly for his great questions. So the question from Luke, thank you for submitting it, is do you continue to convert your regular money into cryptocurrency that you're investing in or are you at the point where you're actually moving your cryptocurrency between all of your existing investments and are there benefits to converting converting in any manner? Yeah, so first I'm at the point where I'm, moving a lot of my crypto around if something goes up to a certain point i like to 
take my profits and mm-hmm. put it back into something else. Mm-hmm. But I'm also uh, dollar cost averaging. So I'm also feeding in new fiat currency every couple of weeks to to keep improving my position and making that position larger. Right. So I guess I'm doing both. I guess mm. that's that's uh, that'd be the answer to that one. Mm. How about you, mate? I'm just I just keep putting money in because I'm trying to get as little in regular money as I can, and the less I have in regular money, the better. Cool. Oh, the second question was: Are there any specific trading practices that you adhere to? I think there are some general things that I've heard from you over the t- over time. Um, I've heard you say before that um, yeah, don't buy on green days. Don't grab buy when the market's going up. You know, if there's a coin you love, it's going up. Just hold off. That'll be fine. Mm. Uh, another trade, like trading practice, that is. You know, it does. You've you've just got to take a take a deep breath and remember that the market is crazy. The market is setting some ridiculous value, and you can accept it or reject it. If the market offers you a price that's way too low, say yeah, sure, I'll take your deal. If the market's going, oh, well, this price is way too high, don't buy it. Mm. What other things do you have to add to that? Yeah, look, I try and keep emotions out of it as much as possible. So essentially, I, if I buy into something, I, I've, I make a decision in my head. Is this something I'm buying into because I believe in the project and it's a long-term investment? Or is it something that I'm buying because I think this is going to go up and I'm just doing it because I see an opportunity and I'm taking it? That's the two different mentalities. And if you're doing mm. it because it's a project that you really, really, really like and you believe in, then I normally won't pull my money out of that, even if it makes yeah, quite yeah, significant yeah, gains. Yeah. I'll normally keep it in. Mm. But if it's something that I've just bought in because I've, I've seen an opportunity and I think I'm, I, could, I could make some money on it, then I need to set myself a point where I say, okay, at this point I'm pulling out. And that takes the emotion out of it because you're mm. going with a plan. And I try and whenever... I'm about to make an emotional decision. I just walk away, take a break, and then have a think about it, try and think about it rationally, and then come back and mm. make the decision. Mm. Um, the, the worst decisions you make are normally when you're making split-second decisions. So we're moving on to our Crypto Basics section. For those of you guys that are brand new to the podcast, every episode we try and dig into the, some of the basics around the crypto world. Uh, we, we now have got a, a lot of listeners who are quite new to the crypto world. And if you are, um, we recommend you check out episode two and work your way back um, through from there. You can skip by seeing the the, sh- the timestamps in the show notes and you can mm. see on YouTube, jump through it. Anyway. Yeah, and, and look, if you feel like you're across all this stuff, then feel free to skip ahead. But what we normally find as we research this stuff and and prepare it all for you is that we learn quite a lot. Mm. And we think even if you know everything about this, it might give you a way to present it to your friends. So, mate, what are we talking about this week? We're talking about Bitcoin. Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Gold, Bitcoin Plus, Bitcoin Diamond. There's every type of Bitcoin out there. The <laughs> I, I say that one of those is a futures thing of some type. Anyway, that's not the point. Yeah, so if you jump on any exchange at the moment, you'll probably see something that's a little strange. There's at least two Bitcoins. There's actually three now, uh, the, the the main ones. And there's also a whole bunch of other Bitcoin lookalikes floating around further down. So you've got Bitcoin, which is the main one, but you've also got Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Gold. Why? Yeah, so to understand it, you first need to look at some history. So the original vision for Bitcoin was made by Satoshi Nakamoto, and that was in his Bitcoin white paper. And we'll put the link to that in the show notes. We talked about this a lot in episode two. So if you want to hear more about Bitcoin and 
everything that it encapsulates. And yeah, go back to episode two. We did a whole section on that. But look, essentially what Bitcoin was proposing to be was a system for electronic transfers that didn't rely on trusting banks and other intermediaries. Uh, it's peer to peer, and it's um, it's it's well, what's called proof of work. So it's secured by computer miners. So all those big powerful machines you've heard of, you know, or, or maybe seen some footage of, of wearing away, doing some kind of complicated computer magic in order to keep transactions happening, keep everything going and moving. Yeah. So the way it manages the transaction is is through the use of keys and digital signatures. So that gives you personal control over the ownership of your currency. So if you own a Bitcoin, you are personally responsible for that and you have the private keys and the signatures to be able to send that to other people. The way that you can trust the system is through maths and it's an open ledger that anyone can read. So essentially, you can see all the transactions going on everywhere and you can be sure that they're happening. And the rules for this system in Satoshi's vision is that they be set by consensus. Early on, there was consensus on everything. But as time went on, different stakeholders emerged. You had the the big, powerful mining groups who sort of clustered together with their power. You have the hodlers who've been, you know, holding their Bitcoin for a long time. You've got the developers, the investors and visionaries. And there's a difference of opinion over where Bitcoin should go. Yeah, and look, it wasn't helped by the fact that Satoshi essentially disappeared from the face of the earth. He was around for the early parts of Bitcoin, but then he said, no, nah, I'm done. I'm going to leave this to everyone else. And you kind of lost that that influence. You know, you look at Ethereum, you've got Vitalik Buterin, who's the, the so-called creator of Ethereum. And essentially what he says about Ethereum pretty much goes. And that's kind of the end of the argument. So you lost that with Bitcoin. And so it essentially became up to a whole bunch of different parties to be able to determine where things were going to go. Now, as Bitcoin got more popular, things started slowing down, the transaction fees started getting higher, the blocks took longer to mine, and the the big issue that emerged from all this was that there was a block size of only one megabyte. Now, back then, that seemed like plenty, mm. because, you know, no one could really imagine the kind of scale that we're working mm. on now, you know, where we talked about before, like, the 60th largest consumer, if it was a country, of power. I mean, that's that's nuts, and I'm sure Satoshi... While he thought in the concept of maybe making this worldwide one day, Mm. the actual physical implications of that didn't really become apparent. Mm. So it's just not built for the amount of transactions that are going on these days. Now, some people dealt with this just by starting their own projects, Ethereum, Dash, Doge, uh, while others instead stuck with Bitcoin to see if they could reach consensus over improvements. Um, Some people proposed a simple fix, like increasing the block size, which means you'd have a a bigger box to store all the transactions in, meaning you could handle more. But the downside is that it would increase the size of the blockchain. Yeah, so others proposed this solution called segregated witness or SegWit. And what that essentially said was that they were going to remove all the data signatures from Bitcoin transactions. So they were going to take a whole chunk out of the transactions and essentially store it off the Bitcoin network. And some claim that this would make things faster and increase security, uh, while others claimed it would simply mean that SegWit transactions got priority because the network would recognize those transactions and say, we're going to give you priority over everyone else. But the goal of that was to reduce the size of each transaction on the blockchain. So if you're thinking about the, uh, the box example we've used through all this, it would essentially, you know, you could tear it off the bottom half of the paper and and throw it away 
and just chuck the top half of the paper in the box mm. and that lets you fit two mm. times the amount of paper into it. That was the idea. So Bitcoin Cash supporters um, claimed that Bitcoin was going to SegWit actually went against its goal of having an open ledger because you're essentially hiding things from the ledger, which would you'd have to trust the legitimacy of what was there, but you would only had a half the information. Mm. The seg- SegWit was essentially proposed by Bitcoin Core, who were the self-proclaimed developers of Bitcoin, and they didn't want to increase the, the block size. So... There's allegations from the Bitcoin Cash side that they ran a censorship campaign. Bitcoin Cash people allege that they control Reddit Bitcoin and they've stifled a lot of the argument from and the proposals from the Bitcoin Cash side. And so in the end, they decided that they wanted to hard fork Bitcoin. So what is hard fork? Yeah, so a hard fork is essentially taking software, copying it, and changing something fundamental about it. So you can think of it like a company split. Though Both companies will use... Both companies that result will use essentially the same systems because that's how they've been doing things, but a few of the fundamentals are going to change. A soft fork in the alternative is like a major patch. So it's more like an improvement or a fix, but it doesn't really change anything fundamental. This is where it gets a little bit confusing. A hard fork can still be within the same organization if everyone is agreeing on a fundamental change. So in blockchain terms, if you look at Steemit, for example, which we talked about last week, they've had, I think, 32 or 33 different hard forks within a year. Wow. But they've all been agreed upon. Mm. It just means that they can't go back. So the, the hard fork that they have, they can't, go back to the previous version of the blockchain and say, we want to go back there mm. because they've fundamentally changed something. Right. And I think with Steam, it's like a hard fork for them would be like implementing a new post type right, or enabling right, videos. Right, 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 right. So, you know, something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Something quite simple, but they have to fundamentally change the code. Yeah, yeah. And Bitcoin Cash was a hard fork of Bitcoin and it was aimed at increasing the block size. So... Everyone who had Bitcoin also got Bitcoin Cash in August. Mm. Um, then uh, was it an equivalent number in Bitcoin Cash? Yeah, it, essentially a copy of the like blockchain. a mirror of it. Yeah. And then miners could mine either Bitcoin Cash or Bitcoin, but they couldn't do both. So the same chain before August, but now it's totally different. Mm. Now, there's a third one. So just to make things even simpler, <laughs> there's a, now a third Bitcoin called Bitcoin Gold. And... Allegedly, it came out of a desire to allow people to mine with their graphics card again, mm. like Ethereum. You know, Ethereum has a an ASIC-resistant mining algorithm, and ASIC is the type of miner that mines Bitcoin the best. And so, Bitcoin Cold said, "Look, this all started with mining on video cards. That was where it was. That was the great old times. You know, we could all mine Bitcoin with our graphics cards. And, and look, it arose out of a legitimate concern. They said." Look, because things are getting so hard to mine, the only people that are able to secure the network anymore are huge mining farms owned by only a few people. You know, you could probably say that 10 people maybe control the hashing power of 99% of the Bitcoin network. Mm. You know, those those 10 or that, I'm just picking a number out of the hat, but those few server farms essentially control the whole network. Mm. And they're saying that's not good enough. They're saying it should be less about big miners and it should be more about the small miners because that's what decentralization is. So ASIC resistance is 
good for the everyday person with a, who just wants to mine on their computer. So there was some controversy. So developers uh, gave themselves a pre-mine, which is um, they actually allocated themselves. Was it? What did they allocate themselves? Did they allocate themselves like unused bitcoins or bitcoins they'd known had disappeared? Or yeah, I, I'm not sure. I just know they allocated themselves. I think it was about 180,000 bitcoin, um, and I think. They may have done that by either expanding it to twenty one million one hundred eighty thousand. Right, 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 right. If they right. just gave everyone a little bit less, right, than they would have right, right. I'm not okay. sure, but yeah. it was ostensibly as development funds, so it was ostensibly to to pay for their development. But look, it's still relatively unknown, so we won't deal with Bitcoin Gold much now. The main battle, if you will, at the moment is between Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Core. So there's been a lot of noise around this. I mean, having spent, uh, I mean, like Matt spent <laughs> a fair amount of time looking at both sides of the argument. I've seen the Twitter arguments and both sides are compelling in their own ways. Both, you know, you, you're seeing people who are going to get triggered re- mm. really quickly. And look, it, it's, it's interesting, mate, because um, I was listening to the Vin Armani show uh, last week and I'll put the links in the show notes for that. Uh, he always has a really different opinion of things and he was talking about crypto as religion he was saying look there's a lot of similarities between the development of religions and the development of how people are attaching themselves to these crypto projects you know and nothing's more obvious with that than with bitcoin and bitcoin cash because it seems like the supporters of on on both sides think you can only pick one side you know and you Mm. if you are on the bitcoin side and you even mention bitcoin cash it's like you have a thousand angry people (laughs) throwing their pitchforks at you you know and with bitcoin cash if you even talk about how much money bitcoin's making or something it's the same kind of deal you Mm. know i think what you really need to do is you need to look at both you just need to look at them in in the cold hard light of day you know Mm. we haven't picked a side no yeah no we haven't picked a side like i mean we're seeing words from both sides and you Mm. you can see a lot of sense in both sides and yeah because they're very smart people on both edges of it Um, yeah and i don't think you need to Pick a side. You know, I think that whole pick a side is, is a yeah, bit of a just misnomer. Just buy both, see what happens. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what are the Bitcoin faithful saying? Yeah, so the Bitcoin faithful are saying the goal of the Bitcoin network was not fast, cheap transaction. They are essentially saying that the vision that Satoshi had never mentioned fast, cheap transactions, which is correct, at least if you look at the white paper, it doesn't really mention fast, cheap transactions explicitly. They're saying that also that the Lightning Network is on its way. The Lightning Network is essentially a way to settle a whole bunch of transactions off the main chain of Bitcoin, which, if it works, will mean that the amount of data that needs to be written onto blocks will be significantly smaller. Right, so it reduces a lot of the strain, okay. Yeah, and look, Bitcoin is also the most developed crypto. That's what they're saying. So Mm -hmm. they're saying that more people are developing open source code for Bitcoin than any other. And... It's really interesting. I hadn't actually thought of it this way, but I heard someone discuss this on on a podcast and they were advocating for Bitcoin. They said it's arguably the most decentralized too. At least its development is because it's, it's because it's open source. There's so many developers working on things separately mm. for Bitcoin that there's no one party that actually has complete control over it. Mm. Now, what he didn't touch on was consensus, which is what the Bitcoin Cash people have a big issue with mm. not being able to get anything through consensus. And I think right. that's that's the key there, that 
if you're a developer, you still have to have consensus to write your code to the mm, Bitcoin mm, blockchain mm. before it can get through. Which, you know, SegWit took two years you know, to, from, from conception to actually get to the blockchain. It took two years. Which is a very long time in the crypto so, world. Yeah, getting consensus seems, mm. seems to take a long time. They also say that Bitcoin has the highest amount of hash power, so which, which they allege makes it more secure. And they also say it has the largest value, so it's the best for all the holders out there, which I don't think anyone can deny. Mm. Yeah, so that's that's Bitcoin. But what are the Bitcoin Cash converts saying, mate? So they're saying that the, the true vision of Satoshi's Bitcoin, as you were saying with the whole consensus thing, that was such a big problem. And they're saying that they've got actually got the vision and they couldn't do it through Bitcoin Core. So the only option they had was to fork and sort the situation out. Now, they're also saying that the block size is actually the easiest way to scale while keeping true to a, a single blockchain. While the not Lightning Network that, that's coming in with Bitcoin happens off-chain, they didn't think it was a wise idea. They said Bitcoin Cash has got faster transactions. It's much cheaper um, and faster transactions. They're saying there are too many hodlers in Bitcoin, too many people who aren't actually spending and they're just holding it. Um, and they're saying this cash version can actually be used for you know buying a coffee, for example, because it's got lower transaction fees, it's more profitable, and it's it's better to develop for because you can do uh, micro microtransactions. Arguably, it's still relatively expensive. The microtransaction thing's a bit funny because it's all relative to Bitcoin, uh, isn't it? I mean, if you look at something like you know, PIVX or Dash or any of those other cryptos, the transaction fee is much, much lower mm. than Bitcoin or Bitcoin Cash. But in the perspective of Bitcoin, they're saying that they are relatively cheap, which is true. Which if you want to do a transac- microtransaction on the Bitcoin blockchain and you had to choose between the two, it would be a lot cheaper for you to build in mm. microtransactions on Bitcoin Cash rather than Bitcoin Core. I did see some of that on Twitter because you've got some people saying, oh, well, you know, what does it matter that Bitcoin's transaction fee is, so, is you know, $5, $10. And then other people are saying the reason you can't understand is because that's $5, $10, which to some of the unbanked people in the world is a ridiculous amount of money to spend on a transaction fee. Mm. And you can see that. Yeah, I think you can. And look, I think with this, the best way to judge which is the superior blockchain or whatever you want to call it, is to look at both objectively and just say, hey, look, let's just look at the cold hard facts and weigh them up against each other. So what are the transaction fees like? Yeah, so Bitcoin, when it hit its high, which was a couple of months ago, the average transaction fee was $20, which is massive. Like, imagine wanting to get a transaction through of, say, $50. You You just want to send 50 bucks to your mate. $20 of that would be taken as a transaction fee to the network. So right now, uh, the average transaction fee for Bitcoin is around about five US dollars. So that means that on average, anyone who is trying to get a transaction through on the network is having to pay somewhere around $5 to push their transaction somewhere else. Now, that could be significantly lower if you're manually setting a transaction amount, and it also could be significantly higher depending on what kind of priority you want. But that's the average. So it's averaging around about $5 US. Now, Bitcoin Cash, conversely, it's high. So when it really peaked, and I think that was around the time the first real battle was going on, its high was around $0.60, average transaction fee. And it's since come down to around about $0.23 US as an average right now. So Bitcoin, it's going to cost you about $5. Bitcoin Cash, it's going to cost you around about $0.23. So quite clearly, Bitcoin Cash is the winner there Mm, as far as transaction mm. fees go. But what about security? 
So with Bitcoin Cash, hosting the blockchain is going to become more important and that will give you an advantage. Now, there are concerns from Bitcoin that the blocks will get so big with Bitcoin Cash that the only people to host it will be data centers, which again is taking it away from the people. And then there's the other point, which is on a lot of this is likely to be hosted in China in the future. Now, if the majority of the network is there as far as hashing power is concerned, that means that the people in control there could, could in fact, um, double spend and actually validate that through all the hashing power that they have, which is a potential, real potential risk. So they share, they share a lot of the same features. And, you know, they can both get, they've both got the potential to get really congested mm. um, if they grow. And Bitcoin Cash is obviously a lot less congested, but... That's only because of the, uh, the bigger block size. So, so much more can be fit into one block that there's not that backup of people waiting to get into mm. the next block mm. because there's so much more that can be written into the block. There's also the ability to update. So, at the moment, Bitcoin Cash is getting push updates pretty regularly. Uh, and that's mainly because everyone has kind of like a shared vision for it at the moment. Whereas with Bitcoin, while Bitcoin Core is still the influential party, there are still a bunch of stakeholders. And nothing's really changed with how difficult it is to get things through. I mean, we saw with Segwit2x, which was a, another version of Segwit they wanted to push through recently. It looked like it was going to happen. And then as time went on, people stopped signaling for it and it didn't even happen. Mm. And a lot of people were saying that it was the update that Bitcoin really needed to be able to compete with Bitcoin Cash. So there's an issue there. And so you've really got to give the ability to update, at least at the moment, to Bitcoin Cash as well. But yeah, with uh, development-wise, um, transaction fees really cripple the ability to develop on Bitcoin. Whereas with Bitcoin Cash, it's, again, it's the winner of the two. Lower transaction fees, so it's more practical to be building stuff with it. So adoption-wise, it seems like there are a lot more people buying Bitcoin but then, you know, as we say, those huge those fees <laughs> are a huge barrier. And, you know, arguably the people aren't buying Bitcoin because it's, you know, the, the most tech advanced. If you want tech advanced, there are a hundred others out there we mm. can point you to. Mm. Better transactions, bigger potential volume, all of these things that are solved there. But they're not buying it for tech, but speculation and I guess the brand value that's attached to it. Yeah, I, I guess it's really what your class is adoption, isn't it? Like if your class adoption just people buying into the system, then I guess Bitcoin is the better chain, mm. simply because there's more people buying mm. into it and there's more excitement around it. But if you class adoption as going from a store of value to a real use of blockchain technology and people using it every day, I mean, look, the, the biggest thing is the proverbial buying a coffee. We always talk about, you know, that seems to be the measure that people measure mm. adoption against. Mm. So like, can you buy a coffee with it? Mm. And it's confused me a bit seeing we accept Bitcoin in cafes and coffee stores because mate, <laughs> you try and buy a coffee with that, you know, you're going to wait probably half an hour for the transaction to validate and you're going to pay 4 to $5 in transaction fees. And by then your coffee's cold and you're upset. And, and you could have bought two coffees. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it just depends on what your class is adoption. So I think someone who supports Bitcoin will probably say, look, yeah, we, we've got the most adoption because most people are buying it. But the people that support Bitcoin Cash are going to say, well, you can buy a coffee with Bitcoin Cash. You can't buy it with Bitcoin. Cool. Mm. So the mining profitability as well, I mean, it seems pretty close. It's is it Bitcash at the moment? Bit, bit Bitcoin Cash, sorry, at the moment. Yeah, looking at Bitinfo charts, 
it seems like Bitcoin Cash is just edging out Bitcoin Core at the moment, but that may have changed. I know the Bitcoin rose a fair bit today, um, so it may be Bitcoin, but at, apparently they're kind of neck and neck. At the end of the day, it's, it seems like a lot of this chat comes down to the original vision of Satoshi. You know, everyone talks about, well, what does Satoshi? What did Satoshi originally want? Um, and it's funny as humans, you know, we we seem to just want to gravitate towards this like figure. We want to have a figurehead that just tells us what to do. <laughs> and I think this whole blockchain revolution is really bringing to the fore just how scary and how different decentralization is going to be for humanity. Because essentially, you don't have anyone you can point to to say, make a decision for me. You've got to all come together and make a decision. And look, even if you want to look at the original vision of Bitcoin, I mean, Satoshi proposed the distributed ledger where trust wasn't an issue. He didn't really make a mention of how high fees should be or block size. So essentially, we're just left to fill in the blanks anyway, even if we look at his original vision. But so does the original vision really matter anyway? I mean, obviously, you know, Satoshi was it was it was a visionary, mm. but does, does does the original vision matter anymore? Yeah, I don't think it really does. To be honest, I think with the blockchain space, what you've got to look at is what kind of utility can I get from this? So what does this what kind of function does this thing perform? And you've got to measure it against its functionality because that's essentially where the value is der- yeah. derived from, isn't it? Because this is open source, I think at the end of the day, the, the better system should probably win out. And mm. I think that's arguably the system that works best for the most amount of users. The difficulty is, of course, you, what works best is a completely subjective mm. view, you know, and, you, and, and everyone will have a different opinion on what works best. But I don't think that there's really sides to be had here. Mm. I think it's just looking at these things and going, well, which of them works best? Which of them stands up better? You know? Yeah, because that's and, what and your, your granddad would ask. You go and speak to him. You're like, oh, you got this and that. You could be at one side. You just be like, which is cheaper, which is, you know, this, that and the other. Yeah, yeah. And, and look, at the end of the day, you've also got to ask yourself, what do I want to get out of it? Because if you want to get out a whole bunch of speculative value, if you want to ride the wave up, Bitcoin's your best bet at the moment. Because it's it's going parabolic, and it's also the the biggest. So you've got arguably some people would say you've got less risk because you're investing in something bigger. But if you want to look at what you think is probably going to be adopted long term, and what's going to have some real utility in a future society, I think out of the two, it's probably Bitcoin Cash, at least at the moment. Now that may change down the track. This lightning network, no one really knows what it is or how it's going to work. And I mean, Bitcoin took two years to implement SegWit. So, you know, there's there's no telling whether it will actually even be implemented anytime mm. soon. Um, but I think if you're looking at utility, the one that's faster and cheaper, I mean, that's... Yeah, it should win out at the end of the it, day. It should win out at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, it's like sort of HD DVD versus Blu-ray. I mean... It's literally, I'm, I'm pretty sure you posted this image into our Slack group the other day. Um, it was fantastic. You know, there was a table and people sitting at it and people like, oh, transaction fee should be this or transaction fee should be that. And then there's some bloke sitting at the other end of the table who's like, why can't transactions just, just be free? And everyone just looks at them just like, 
what is wrong with you? And then the next, the next scene's him sailing out the window as they throw him out. <laughs> but it's a very good point. I mean, you know, you're looking at Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, all this like bots and bot armies and mm. big powerful people who are, you know, having loud Twitter arguments and using big words and insulting each other's mothers and all this, that and the other. But at the same time, I can find, you know, 10 different currencies out there that beat all of the problems that both of these things have. Yeah. And I just don't get why it has to be between Bitcoin Cash. I feel like it's just the last two weeks has this suddenly become a conversation. Yeah. No one yeah. cared about it. There were no bots flooding comment sections with stuff. It was literally just just came out of nowhere. Mm. I figure there are probably some just very wealthy people who want to make a few bucks. Yeah. And they're pushing it at the moment to try and, you know, just keep your attention for the time being and make a quick make a buck out of it. Yeah, look, at the end of the day, it comes down to fundamentals. You just need to look at what you want to achieve, what your personal goals are, and you know, you can look into the future as well and say, what do you think is going to offer the most utility or be of the most value in the long term? And that's what you've got to make your decisions on. Now, that could be Bitcoin, that could be Bitcoin Cash, that could be Bitcoin Gold, or mm. it could be a hundred of the other cryptocurrencies out mm. there. I mean, we talk about them a fair bit, and I can pay 20 cents transacting with Bitcoin Cash, yep. or I can pay the equivalent of half a cent Transacting with Pivx. Touche. And Pivx has 10 second block times. We love Pivx here, but Pivx is great. It's got a fantastic community. It's so fast. It's not wasting all this computing power trying to mine stuff, but you know that's not part of the conversation. And they just get on with it too. That's what I like about their project. Yeah. Like they're, they're not out there throwing shade at other coins or arguing about about what's better and what's not better. They're just like, hey, look, this is what we're doing. We think it's cool. Yeah. If you like it, join in. The Dash guys are the same, which is which Pivx yeah. came from originally. They they do a similar thing. They're just out there and they're like, look, we're quick and we're cheap and there's not much of it. Give yeah. us a go, you know? And yeah, we'll- I actually met someone the other day. He was saying that he's predicting Dash is going to be huge, like huger yeah. than it is. Yeah. I was like, like, whoa. Hashtag no investment advice, but I agree. And right. I think... Dash is, it's apart from everything else, it's a great name. I mean, you just yeah. hear Dash and yeah. like, you're like, wow, that's a cool name. Yeah, you know? yeah. And Bitcoin, a lot of it, I think, is it's just marketing. You it's know? just in the it's brand cool name, name now. Like, yeah. at the end of the day, the technicals, it's, I guess it's like mobile phones in many ways. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't care how much RAM is in my phone as long as it works. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, if it was charging me $2 every time I made a call, I would, <laughs> tell, right. I would go for the and, cheaper and phone. That's where it comes down. <laughs> I mean, you just have to what, – what you need to do is you need to shift your mind out of crypto and you need to get this thing and you need to say, okay, if my bank charged me $5 every time I sent money to someone else, would I continue banking with that bank or would I go somewhere else that had lower fees? That's a very fair point. There's a whole bunch of other cryptos out there that have the same technology or better technology and can process your transaction faster and cheaper than either Bitcoin or Bitcoin Cash. But anyway, we, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, yeah. And if you want to continue this debate, please jump in our Slack. Uh, Send us we'd, some hate We'd tweets. love to chat about Send it. Send your bot armies after us. Well, that's about it for us on the, uh, on the FOMO show this week. Uh, thank you for joining us. If you know someone who might enjoy what you've just listened, um, please feel free to uh, share it with your friends. Why not ping them a link to uh, FOMO.show? Yeah, so our website's really starting to take shape. Uh, we've got a Start Here page. Our Buy Crypto page is also online. 
I will be expanding with tools, as we mentioned earlier. You can jump on our Slack at fomo.show slash Slack. You can follow us on Twitter at the, the underscore FOMO underscore show. You can also check us out at Facebook at facebook.com slash the FOMO show. And we have a YouTube channel. That, um, I'm so sorry to those subscribers. I may have just uploaded four episodes in a row, but I'll try not to do that ever again. Um, yeah, there's a YouTube channel. You can check out our episodes there. Timestamps work very nicely. And we're also on Steemit as well. So we've, oh, we've taken our own advice and we've decentralized our podcast. And you can now find us at steamit.com slash at FOMO show. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if you liked our show, please subscribe in your podcast app of choice. I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. And as always, remember, no FOMO. Isn't life just one big blockchain? Yes, here we are, watching the bubbles float in the air. Watching bubbles. Lovely day. Lovely day, watching bubbles. It's another great day, and there's bubbles everywhere, and uh, who knows when they'll burst. You can't buy a hot air balloon for love or money. Maybe we didn't want to buy fairy liquid in this country, because we're not... (laughs) We're we're not not fairies. We're not fairies. We're serious, down-to-earth blokes. and we right. (laughs) We just want the morning to be very fresh. Because when I was listening to that podcast, it was like, you have a, a collect call charge, a reverse call charge from, hello, <laughs> hello. <laughs> and now we're going to talk about bubbles. Bubbles, yes. <laughs> we're here again. <laughs> That's all. I don't know what else you really want from us. I mean, what do you want?